I was always the odd one out. I always liked things that were more associated with girls, but knew that was not okay to do. I liked dressing up my characters. I liked playing with a pink penguin on Club Penguin. I liked all these things that I was told I shouldn't like. This is Pedro, one of my friends and recent grads at Stanford. He's telling me about his first memories online, playing Club Penguin and listening to Britney Spears with the screen turned so no one could see. These worlds were kind of an escape from that, where I could be anything I wanted to be. I could take care of these animals. I could live my life the way I wanted to. And then when I realized I was gay, it all made sense. Basically, every queer person I know who grew up online has stories like these. Stories backdropped by pixel animations and 8-bit sounds. I, too, came of age online. I was obsessed with recreating the world I wanted to live in, with the hopes of figuring out who I was and where I could fit in. From anime fan communities to pop punk fan guilds to being an online trolls doll, I did it all. I looked for others like me, interested in crawling weird niche forums and making Pokemon pixel art. My sister and I were registered on so many sites, we literally kept a notebook to keep track of our usernames and password logins. What does it mean to be queer and come of age online? What makes these experiences so formative to my life and the lives of others? In this podcast, we'll meet two queer gamers. Today, these two queer gamers are architects of the internet. They're shaping the online worlds that new generations get to explore. But they wouldn't be who they are today without their earliest experiences online. Everything for these gamers started way back. We begin in an elementary school computer lab in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is Teddy Pozo. Teddy and I met over video chat, which is fitting for a podcast about the internet, where they told me about their first experiences online. In fifth grade computer lab, Teddy's classmates would sneak onto the internet in between typing tutorials. Teddy, amidst the teasing, felt out of place and unable to relate. We were searching a bunch of different search terms and we came onto a porn site. First, there was this wave of people like looking up porn and trying to use it to tease other people, mostly people who were perceived as girls like me. Around the time the internet was introduced was actually around the time that I started to realize that I was being excluded from it. This discomfort for Teddy went far beyond school walls. I developed early, so I was having um, a body type that people saw as very feminine and womanly from about the age of 12. I used to go to arcades with my dad sometimes, and I remember the moment that it flipped and I was walking to like a video game store and every dude in the room turned his head to face me. And I realized that I couldn't do that anymore. My experience of puberty was a little bit like my body was becoming this other entity that wasn't myself. But once Teddy was able to access the internet on their own, everything changed. I had a girl that I was really interested in and we spent all of our time together. I remember being in her room making HTML websites about different fandoms that we were part of. You know, um, just making really silly websites that had a bunch of GIFs on them and like little flame animations. We were like just looking at things that were not coded in a masculine or professionalized sense. They were being presented as something that you might just like do, but it wasn't really like important that you do it right. For Teddy, this early romance wouldn't have been possible without the internet. We used to talk on AIM as like our only way of having a private conversation. She was in the closet, I was in the closet. 
the only way that we could talk to each other basically in a candid way was through typing. The ability to close the door, I mean, that was what influenced me to enjoy computers for the first time. It wasn't until college that Teddy had a chance to truly redefine who they were. Coming into college, Teddy had come out as queer, but they hadn't come out yet as trans. I was just sitting around by myself, hiding. Until one day, Teddy made a discovery. Trans YouTube. I started out researching trans YouTube and just people talking really openly about their transition. I was watching videos having to do with people's surgeries, documenting their voice change, and being like, oh my God, this is like really exciting that other people are doing this, you know? Like I actually have a real existence as a transmasculine non-binary person. I felt like my heart was kind of opening up, like some part of myself that had been really painful and secretive was kind of able to be playful again. I received dial-up as a Christmas present uh, from my parents and on Christmas morning in like 1998, um, we had a scavenger hunt to the modem that we were given, like line by line. This is Kat Brewster speaking about their first memories online. Their first memories also start in the genesis of the internet. I'm, I'm of that generation where like, there we, we, I still had this childhood that was outside, and then pretty soon I, I had a, a childhood that was soundtracked by the sound of dial-up. I just, I remember being in people's basements all the time around computers and, you know, having one chat window open with one person while you had another chat window open with another person and like, you were both talking about the conversation that the, each person was having with each other. Soon, Kat couldn't imagine a world without preteens in basements messaging each other about school drama. But the drama that most people cared about, Kat couldn't relate to. AOL wasn't cutting it. Being queer and being a teenager and living in, like, suburban Virginia next to a military base is like, you know, where do you find spaces to be out? Kat needed to find an online space where they felt free. After some digging, Kat made a discovery. The uh, caverns of, of early queer internet life. In 2003, 2004, really a lol random XD kind of person, um, you know, going on to, again, you know, message boards, RP forums, and just being like a real force for chaos. You know, and learning how to how to use CSS and and like hacking into the mainframe so that you could get sparkles on your um, your Neopets page, and really enjoying that sense of freedom that I don't think we felt. The terror of figuring out that you're a person is is really hard. <laughs> In their senior year of high school, Kat's brother was diagnosed with a serious chronic illness. With no one to turn to, Kat found themselves relying more and more on the relationships they knew existed online. So it was, God, I don't know, maybe like six people who over the course of a year were probably my closest friends. You know, we spent more time off of 
the board than we did on the board, um, talking online and being there for each other and, and watching television together, you know, in like the three, two, one go sort of way. How, how do you find people who are like you in all of your weird ways that let your weird ways flourish um, without the internet? I think if I hadn't had the internet, um, I would have been a much sadder teen. In a very morbid sense, I might be dead. I might, you know, I don't know. There's kind of a queer rite of passage of like, a friend of yours goes dark online and then there's this huge, you know, wave of concern as everyone's like, oh, have you heard from so-and-so? No, I haven't heard from so-and-so. Oh, she was like posting on her blog that something was going really, you know, awry. And, and so you, you call the police for a town that you don't live in to do a welfare check on a person that you've never actually met, but who you're worried about because of the weird space that all of you are existing in. And I think it's so important for queer youth to have spaces where they can navigate who they are. Having a kind of internet and digital literacy can be life-saving, life-saving. In their work today, Kat and Teddy hold a piece of their earliest experiences, a bit of the awkwardness, the playfulness, but also the discomfort they felt in their earliest moments online. Teddy is now a professor of modern culture and media studies at Brown University, where they research all things queer games and tactile media. In our conversation together, Teddy told me about Worm, a game they're currently developing about what it feels like to be misgendered. Teddy was in a workshop learning how to create an interactive story, kind of like a virtual choose-your-own-adventure. But Teddy was distracted for a couple of reasons. All they could focus on was the painfulness of the chest binder they were wearing. And to make things worse, Teddy found themselves surrounded by cisgendered men who couldn't even begin to understand their discomfort. I felt really isolated and misunderstood at the event itself. But that experience, that discomfort and isolation Teddy felt, they became its own inspiration. And the first scene, it says, welcome to your body. You're 13 years old. You have like gigantic boobs and you have like long curly hair. And then the next scene is you have to like do your character creation. And it's like your mom takes you to a bra store and you only have two bra options. And I knew that they were going to put it on the screen and read it out loud. These like, you know, straight cis guys. So I kind of wanted to like create that sense of disempowerment for them, <laughs> that they don't actually have like a choice. I like wanted to watch them get uncomfortable. I think as I'm transitioning, I feel like that creativity of using digital media is coming back to me. Like my ability to feel more creative is coming back a little bit. I have been, you know, holding myself back, and I believed that games were an area in which I would always have to hold myself back because video games were not supposed to be like that. In the past 10 years, the queer games movement has exploded. There are all kinds of games that exist now that would have been unimaginable just two decades ago. Around the world, more and more people feel like they can make simple and strange games. People like Teddy and Kat have found a community in a space that never before existed for queer people like them. I think that's something that inspires me about the queer game scene is I feel like it has a little bit of that quality that there was and there is this ethos of just like make something and make it weird and make it real and express yourself and like tell 
the darkest part of yourself if you want. Like Teddy, Kat's teenage fascination with online digital culture, this fascination is now their work as a queer media archivist. And so I thought, well, it'll be really easy to find people talking about gay experiences with games because I know that gay people have been playing games for as long as there have been games and there have always been gay people. Um, and it was really hard. And I thought that that was so interesting that it took me so many like side steps to try and find something that I knew existed based on my own experiences. So where were they? Kat's search took them to the one archives at the University of Southern California, the largest repository of LGBTQ plus print materials in the world. This would change the course of their entire life. And I remember being like, this is so dumb. I know that like the only archives that I need are online because I'm studying online culture and you know, I'm not gonna find anything in a physical archive because everything I need is online, duh. And the archivist said to me, well, you know, we don't really have anything that is digital. And I was like, well, it's to be expected, okay, bye. She said, I do have these hundreds of pages of printouts from this BBS uh, from a man who had AIDS. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? I sat and I read through, you know, the first couple of folders, because there, there are 12 folders which each have hundreds of pages in each folder. And I was just blown away by how there was this artifact that hadn't been seen, you know, for 30 years almost. And I just cried. Kat had stumbled onto something huge. It was a printout of a bulletin board system, or BBS, kind of like the earliest, clunkiest version of an online forum. The BBS that Kat had found was active from 1987 until 1990. It was maintained by a man who was HIV positive. He kept the BBS going from his HIV diagnosis until his death. The community he created was for people who were HIV positive and their family members and loved ones. They used the early clunky internet as a lifeline of support in a time when no one was listening. If this man who moderated this board and who made this board, David Chernow, if he hadn't printed out these pages, this entire BBS could have disappeared because all the people who maintained it died of AIDS. But I remember after looking at it the first time, I was like, I can't work on this. Kat found themselves revisiting these archives many times. I took about six months before I was like, this is really nagging at me and I think about it all the time. And if I don't do it, who will? And will the person who does work on it want to approach it with the same amount of care that I think it should be handled with? So I went back to the archive and I started photographing and that's what I do now. We don't talk about these people who were using the internet to talk to each other about one of the deadliest epidemics in US history. It was, how can I disseminate information about this specific cancer that gay men are, are getting? And also, where can I have a space that I can talk about my fears and not be afraid that the person I'm talking to is gonna be afraid of me? There's an urgency to which queer folks were using the internet then and the way that they use the internet now that 
in my experience, has been entirely left out of the narrative of the internet today.